What is going on, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this edition of The Drop-In. And you may recognize this character next to me. This is Rob Paul. Last time he was here at the studio, we infiltrated the big studio. We did. <laughs> yeah, everybody. This is nice, too, though. Every, Better rate mortgage. Yep, everybody was gone. Somebody's got to pay the bills. <laughs> right, but everybody was gone that day. Easy's like, uh... uh you guys want to infiltrate the big studio? And we're like, heck yeah, we do. And we were so far apart. <laughs> like, it was hilarious. This is cozier. A little bit cozier. But uh, I want to thank you all for tuning into this episode of The Drop-In. And if you don't recognize this gentleman, make sure to go back after this show is done and check out his episode because it was awesome. He is such such an amazing human. You got to check it out. I mean, uh -huh. uh, the, the, the funniest thing, I think the funniest word that I learned from your show was Hausfrau. Hausfrau. I had never heard that term in my life. And when you were in Germany, uh, that's what it you was got indeed to... a Hausfrau, and it's exactly what it sounds like. The, right, the Frau of the house. Yeah, it was that's what it, it was. It was so much fun having you on then, and we obviously were developing a wonderful friendship. We've been friends. We've been doing some cool stuff together. Last week we were in Ferndale, and you had mentioned that. Um, and you're not the only one that has mentioned, why don't you get interviewed on your show, Gerald? And I'm like, let's do this. You agreed to come in. Um, not your forte, but you agreed to uh, get outside of your comfort zone and come in and interview me. So for you guys, I am turning the show over now to Mr. Rob Paul to interview me. So thank you once again, Rob. Thank you for being here. And uh, it's so, your, it's yeah, your show. full disclosure on my radio show. I don't really interview people. I We just talk, which comes naturally to me, but we play a lot of music. So nonstop talking. So I do, unfortunately, have cheat sheets just in case I get stumbled up. But the first thing I'd like to know about Gerald uh, is I saw in a bio that you, you said you had a difficult birth or you came into this world in a different way, but it didn't really give any details about that. So I'm pretty curious what you meant by that. All right. Well, um, I was four pounds when I was born. Oh, wow. I was fluorescent orange like jaundice. Uh, my great-grandmother, who was up here from North Carolina at the time, my mom always reminds me of this, she looked at me and she was like, what's wrong with it? Were you early? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, premature baby. And uh, my legs were, I mean, it was, it's not that uncommon, but my feet were super jacked up. So I had to wear what's called a Gatlin splint. For the first two years. That sounds painful. It's basically a rod bolted to the bottom of your shoes, and you have to keep that. Though you have, Those are the shoes I wore. Okay. So I was like. <laughs> and my mom said, like, I can motor around the house. Like, once I got to that walking, crawling phase, she's like, you motor around the house all, all the time. Did you start walking at a normal age, or mm -hmm. did that take longer? No? No. It seemed like I had normal progression when it came to that. But she said when she took that off of me. I almost had to, there was a little bit of a learning curve there, like learning how to walk without it or motor around the house without it. And how it. old were when they came off? Right around two. Okay. And, oh, okay. And then I had to work. So you must have thought you were just like every other kid, right? Well, well, that's the raddest thing. Right. That is the raddest thing is my mom never treated me like I was different. Like she just treated me like I was every other kid. And, and I, I see it as a blessing. I just got goosebumps in my whole body because I think it's one of the biggest blessings I ever got in my life. She didn't treat me like I was handicapped, like I was different, like I needed special needs. I was just like everybody else. And um, 
And then I went into correctional shoes to till I was four. So it was a big day when I got to go to the normal shoe store and get regular people's shoes. That was like a huge like rite of passage for what me. What was prior to that? Did you have to go to a doctor to get shoes or? No, I grew up uh, 20 minutes south of Detroit in southeastern Michigan. And we had a store there called McLinden's. And they had correctional shoes. So okay. that was the only place I could go get shoes. And, um, and so I, they were probably always the same and you couldn't get some sort of shoe that told your style story at that. But did you have a style story at four? No, it was like, you know, whatever, like Wranglers <laughs> and, and, and uh, uh, the pictures of me back then, like King Kong t-shirt. Tough skin jeans. Yep, tough skins <laughs> at five years old, and I got to find the picture. I was Paul Stanley in, 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 in kindergarten for Halloween, and the only reason I was Paul Stanley, because I really liked Ace, but nobody could draw two stars symmetrically. It takes a lot of work. It's yeah. one, one is easier. So there's a picture of me somewhere with my glittery Kiss Army t-shirt and one star in kindergarten. And still your tough skin jeans. <laughs> totally yeah. still my tough skin jeans. <laughs> and then to add to the whole childhood thing, in third grade, I was staring out the window. The teacher called my mom into the school. She's like, all he does is, is daydream out the window, and he doesn't listen, doesn't respond to his name. There's something wrong with him. And... uh yeah, there was. I was almost completely deaf in my right ear since I was born. <laughs> and they and you, just figured it out in third grade. Your parents didn't even know about that. No. Though. So it's not that they were not telling you about it or treating you like every other kid. They just, they legit didn't know either. Right. Yeah. And so my teacher just said, you know, because my last name is Valley and they seat you alphabetically. So I would always be on, you know, I guess my left, my teacher's right side of the room. And my good ear was out the window. My bad ear was towards her. I didn't hear. And... They uh, gave me these hearing aids that were like giant, and um, one was a transmitter, basically. Mm -hmm. So anything that came in this ear, just put it over to this ear. And after about six months or a year, I was getting so much ridicule. And, like, I mean, I was called R2-D2, like C3PO, <laughs> like all kinds of things. And uh, my mom, I'm like, Mom, I'm not wearing these things anymore. And she didn't make me wear them anymore. And I would just let the teacher know they'd seat me on the right side of the room. Most of my friends, even to this day, know, like, walk on the left side of me or I'm not going to hear anything you're saying. Hmm. So you don't have anything in your ear right now that helps you? No, it's a good excuse when I don't want to listen to people. I'm like, I'm deaf in my ear. I didn't hear a word you just said. Just turn your head the other way. Exactly. So You don't hear it. Yeah. So even you had that in school. So that's a challenge right there. But what about school were you good at and what did you find difficult? We talked about being good students and bad students. And I know you were a pretty good student and your parents uh, made sure that happened. But what did you find easy and what did you find difficult? Um, I was athletic. So obviously like gym and all the typical, you know, I didn't really uh, like anything. I didn't like math. It was a challenge. English was a challenge, but I worked hard because I didn't want my parents to get mad at me if I wasn't passing. Um, and I was a little kid, you know, and so I got picked on a lot. I used to get bullied a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, again, my parents are so cool. Like they were just, it was just normal. Like it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, and I, uh, but as far as scholastically about fifth grade is where I, where I really started to have a little trouble where I had to stay after school to learn my English words or whatever it was. 
And it was just, it was work. You know, I, I had to put in a little bit of work to get C's to pass. And once I got to high school, um, skateboarding became very important to me. And I remember I got a D. I was just reiterating this to my dad. I got a D when I was a sophomore in high school because we had a half pipe that I discovered. Uh, and every day after school, I was at the ramp. And I didn't want to bring books home. And uh, I was terrified to tell my dad. And my dad really, you know, I didn't get, you know, beat on. But I knew that might be an option or something. I was just scared of that. And he's just like, bring it up or the skateboard goes away. Were yeah. you playing hockey at that time already? Oh, yeah. So I how s- early did you get into sports in school? Four years old. Oh. I started ice skating. I went straight from correctional shoes to hockey skates. So who instigated that? Were your parents, were, there, were they saying you're going to be a sports kid? Or were you saying, put me in, coach? More of that. Okay. Um, I had went to see my older cousin play hockey, and I just fell in love with it. I'm like, I want to do this. And uh, skating around the ice rink, pushing a chair, learning how to ice skate. <laughs> and then at uh, five years old, I started playing organized hockey. And at the end of that same year, I uh, tried to be goalie because they were letting everybody play all the positions. And um, I freaking love getting puck shot at me or something because I never played another position my whole career. Yeah. But it was more, and I tried them all. I played baseball. And I was a catcher because I was a goalie. I was a catcher, natural progression. Um, did pretty well there. Uh, played one year of football just because I wanted to try it. And it was just too difficult. Um, There's not a position where you can just stay still. Right. <laughs> and I'm little, so I didn't really. But I, 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 my mom's like, if you start, you're finishing. So I played the whole season. And I said, yeah, I don't want to do that again. Um, but I, I like I like playing sports and it was it was my decision my parents didn't really push me into it although my dad is very athletic and my mom's super supportive I think they would have supported whatever I was doing by the time you got to high school were you playing for a high school team or you had already I know there's like triple a double a and minor league type stuff and I know a lot of kids bypass high school sports to be on those travel teams mm-hmm. is that what you did or did well, both? my high school didn't have a team. Oh. Um, there was a local Catholic school that had a pretty good team, and they showed interest because I was a pretty good goalie in the region. People knew who I was. But you didn't have to go to that school to play on the team? Uh, they wouldn't pay for my tuition, so I couldn't play on the team. <laughs> um, oh, okay. Uh, at 14, I did play some AAA hockey, but it's very expensive. So, you know, I had a paper route, and I was working, and I, I was responsible for some of that. Uh, we would sell ads in magazines and things like that um, to help offset the ice bill. And I was a goaltender. It's not cheap. And my dad, like, I, for Christmas, I might get some goalie equipment or I would save up the money to pay for the goalie equipment myself. Um, but at 14, it was just getting too expensive. So what kind of jobs did you have at that point? I don't mean to cut you off. Oh, that's okay. As the, as the questions enter my head, I have to know. That's why we're here. Um my cousin, who was a year older than me, um, I, I started with a paper route, and I grew up in um, a uh, townhouse complex that was, um, uh, it was awesome. It was just this little community, and we were all, it was sort of uh, low income, like you couldn't make over like $25,000 to live there or something crazy. And so it was very tight-knit, and it was 600 total units, and my 
paper route was the front half. Mm. It was 300. So I had the best paper route on the planet because it was like, you know, seven units of building, a ton of clients. They were great. And, um, and all that money went to support hockey? Hockey, anything I was into. I raced BMX for a little bit when I was a little kid, and I built this GT Mach 1 myself. Um, but my cousin and I always had side hustles too. So I would be, him or I would swim in the creek. There was a golf course near our house, and, and one of us would swim and feel the balls in there with our feet, throw them up to the other guy, and then we'd sell them back to the golfers and milk, uh, egg cartons. Um, there was a baseball field, and uh, adult softball was a big deal. And on Saturday nights, they had games going all night long. So Sunday morning, we were there getting all the returnables because in Michigan, they're 10 cents a can. That's true. And we'd make like 20 or 30 bucks on Sunday morning. And then at Christmas, we'd be out Christmas caroling. Like we were always like had some side hustle going. Uh, but yeah, I started at 11, paper out. I think, I think when I was 14, I worked in a bike shop that carried skateboards because I had already started skateboarding. Um, and then I worked in this uh, dry cleaners uh, for a while. And um, and so I started young. I knew I had to pay for some of my own, own mm-hmm. stuff. So I had to make my own money. And I did that um, for a while. But um, back to the hockey question, at 14, my parents were like, this is getting too ridiculous money-wise. And Is that when you, were, you would have to start traveling more? To we were progress? already traveling a ton. But it was just like the teams were based like an hour away. Practice was an hour away, all that kind of thing. And so uh, my dad's like, why don't you play juniors? And um, okay, I'll play juniors. What's juniors? So juniors is like mostly like 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Oh. And I was 14. And, uh, and I got a, a spot on a junior C team. Oh. And it was hilarious because I'm this little kid, and I was a good goalie. And these guys are walking in, you know, like beers after the game. I mean, it was like uh, crazy. And uh, I played um, one season with that junior team. And at the time, and we're talking 1986, Michigan was the mecca for hockey. People were coming here from Canada. They were coming from all over the U.S. For this junior league, or to just play to... in? Yep, to okay. play in the North American Junior Hockey League. It Is that was the result of the Red Wings doing well at that time, or training facilities, or the Wings what? were horrible. Oh, okay. Through the eighties, they didn't really get popular till like the mid nineties. Okay, um, it just happened to be, you know, I don't know, Midwest Michigan. I have no idea why mm. it was the mecca, but. Um, so I played junior C that spring season, and I got drafted into the North American Junior Hockey League uh, by the best team in the league, which sort of sucked because they already had their team picked. So as soon as I got drafted, I got sent down to their farm club. Which was where? It was actually Royal Oak. Okay. And um, and I started playing North American Junior Hockey League. But it was, like, serious. Like, any hockey fans out there, if you know who Eric Lindros is, he was going to be yeah. – he came to Michigan to play. I know play. because he's a poker player also. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> but he came to Michigan, and he was on the first spring uh, spring training I was in. He was playing on my team. Okay. And, um, and then some other people who made it to the NHL, Brian Ralston, Pat Peak, those guys I got to play with in that league. Um and then to, to finish that question, I, I did well, could have went to play in New York. In, in play, I had an opportunity to try out for pro hockey uh, when I was done 
at 20 and a half because that's as long as you can play in that league. And I was just done. So did you come, well, did you have to make a decision to say, hey, I, if I want to continue this, I have to go up to the next level? Yeah. And so it wasn't necessarily you not being able to go to the next level. You had you you made some sort of choice that you weren't going to do it anymore. Why was that? It was just I was over it. Like I, I'd been in an ice rink six, seven days a week since I was like 13. My body was getting beat up. Like my knees were taking a beating as a goaltender. And I'm like, I was already, you know, enrolled in college. I'd already uh, started riding a skateboard. There were other things. And I, and I thought about it and I'm like, I don't want to sit on a bus and make 30 grand a year. What did your parents think? Cause it sounded like you were, you were on this path. Yeah. My dad, I thought was going to like kill me. And, uh, cause he, he, uh, was like, I thought you're going to be, everybody thought you're going to be in the NHL. And I'm like, I don't love it anymore. I quit. Wow. And, um, and yeah, he was pretty devastated. He got over it, but, um, and so I did, still play hockey, but. Did skateboarding play a part in that? Cause you, you were skating while you were playing hockey. Yeah. Um, it really didn't at the time because skateboarding was just what I did because I loved it. Mm -hmm. There was no, I had no aspirations of taking it to the level I was very fortunate to take it to at that time. I was studying art in at Wayne State University and I was having a great time at college and making new friends. And, and so I had no clue. I was just like anybody else. Yeah, like I have no clue where I'm going to end up, but this is what I'm doing right now. When did you first discover skateboarding? I thought... In my mind, you were playing hockey and you were skateboarding and you decided you wanted to be a pro skateboarder and that was it for hockey sort of situation. So I kind of thought they were going hand in hand for quite some time. But, um, Well, cool stories. To answer the first question, um, I think I was about maybe in sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade. And um, there was three of us growing up, my friend Marcel my friend Rob, and and me. And when we were about six, Rob moved to Florida, and our triad was broken. But Marcel and I stayed really good friends, so Rob came back to visit. Uh, like his mom or dad lived in Florida, mom lived up here. He came back to visit, and he had a uh, Schmidt stick Monty Nolder. Ah. And it, coming from Florida, pretty obvious. And I rode that board. It's the first time I ever seen a big wooden board. Mm -hmm. And I tooled around on little plastic. The JC Penney's plastic. Yeah. Totally. And um, and I'm like, man, I really dig this. And uh, um, he went back to Florida. My dad bought me like a cheap big board from Dunham's or Toys R Us or something. I wore that out. Uh, I got one more from like Toys R Us or something. Wore that out. There was a couple other kids in our, our complex that skateboarded. And because I was playing hockey at the time, like I said, I think I was like 83, so I was like 11. Um, I was playing hockey against a lot of guys from more affluent neighborhoods, and they already had Powell Peralta boards and mm. stuff. So the first good skateboard I ever got, and I still love them to this day, I love Lance Mountain. Um, I got a Lance Mountain Powell Peralta board, and it had all the plastic parts on it, like rib bones, mini rib bones, nose bone, all that and one of the kids I played hockey with sold it to me for 35 bucks. All right. And I went home, and that was my first good board. And then um, that Christmas, I actually got a Tony Hawk board from uh, Santa Claus, and um, and it was off to the races. Like, uh, Were the ramps available around for you at that time, or was it like a secret backyard 
thing? More of the secret. Or were you trying street already? I was skating everything. Okay. It didn't matter. Like my neighborhood, um, people remind me of it now. When I see them as adults, they're like, man, we could hear that clicking down the street all the freaking time, you know, and I'd be skating the curves. And but we built a wedge ramp, um, and I would move it from one side where the patio was all the way around to the other side of the building every day. We skated that, and then I started to connect. As a launch ramp or up against the wall? Just up and kick turning. Okay. And, um, and then I started, you know, punk rock at that time or skateboarding at that time. If you saw somebody anywhere and they had a skateboard company shirt on or they had a punk rock band shirt on, it was instant bonding because you had to search it out. And, and it wasn't on every street corner, so you know they had to look for that. And so I would, I would see guys at the ice rink or meet people here or there and start developing these friendships of other skateboarders and um, met some guys from Taylor, and they had a half pipe. And I used to have my mom, my sister like drive me over there on her way to work on Saturdays, and I would just sit on the curb till everybody woke up. Like I wouldn't wouldn't skate the ramp, and then everybody wake up, um, and it was like that. And then I ended up meeting a gentleman from Grosseal, Michigan, uh, named Chuck Watson, and he had a couple ramps too. So at fourteen or fifteen, I got a license to drive a spree, and oh, uh, little and, scooter. Yep, and I would bring every day. Uh, before hockey, or uh, I'd be across this bridge to go to Grozeal and skate his ramps. Um, and it was just continuing to make those relationships, and it was all backyard ramps. We had one skateboard park in the state, and that's KZU Skate Zoo, which mm -hmm. is still around today. Bill Ferguson does an amazing job, and ha I think it's like old, one of the oldest parks in the country. It's got to be because it's been around forever. Yep. And it was just, you know, connecting on hockey road trips. I mean, I went to play hockey in Sweden, and I had my skateboard in my hockey bag, and I was skating Stockholm when I wasn't playing hockey. Were there skaters there? or They actually had a half pipe. I was there in the winter, but they actually, two different ice rinks I played at had a ramp behind them already, and that was 86, 87. Wow. And they had a ramp at the ice rink, but we couldn't, you know, I couldn't skate it. There was this much snow on it. Um but yeah, I used to take my hockey, my skateboard with me everywhere I traveled. And, you know, playing juniors, we'd play the St. Louis Junior Blues, and I'd be taking my skateboard there and out grinding curbs and, and stuff in between playing hockey. Before you called it a day with hockey, did you feel like you were progressing enough in skateboarding to, to make that your thing? Or was it just still fun? I knew I was loving it, mm -hmm. and I knew I was pretty good at it. Yeah. Um, but I never, never. I mean, I'm, I'm from Michigan. So like how I, did that progression start to you loving skateboarding, stopping hockey, to becoming a pro skateboarder? Well, college was rad because I, I, I came across a guy named Steve Rinaldi, and he was riding for Toxic, and he, I went to school with him, and he flowed me some boards. Um and I had a shop sponsor because, like, I, w I was progressing at a, at a good clip. And I was, you know, when I'm fired up about something, I'm all in. <laughs> and skateboarding was that. And, um, and so, uh, you know, what would that be? Like, college, 90, 91, 92, we were going to Canada. I was skating a vert ramp over in Canada, which, for those of you who don't know, Canada is like 15 minutes away. You know, you, we used to be able to just rip across the bridge here in Canada, and we had a skate park in Tecumseh, Ontario, 
And uh, all they had was a vert ramp and a spine ramp. And I was there every Saturday. You skate Sarnia at all? Sarnia, only a couple of times. Weird, weird place. 70s Park had a great time there the couple times I was there. Um, But I just think about that time in my life, you know, around 18 to 20, because I was playing hockey in front of thousands of people. And I would work on Saturday mornings from 7 a.m. to 1. I would get off work, drive straight to Canada, skate from like 2 to 4.30, drive home, get home in time to take a shower, put on a suit, and go to the ice rink and be able to play at a high level there. And I had no, there was never a thought like, what if I get hurt and I can't play hockey? I I had the indestructible, you know, Mm -hmm. as a young person, we're indestructible. But um, following, you know, college, I made some new network people, started, you know, having a license. I could drive. I could go to different ramps and things. And then some contests rolled in, uh, like, 95, 96, 97. Who was putting them on? Uh, Keizu, Ferguson at Keizu would put on contests. Uh, I remember one time there was a contest at a church. We were real young then, though. And uh, my buddy Al Gardner, uh, Big Al, we're still great friends to this day. Him and I skated together a lot. He was one of the Taylor skaters who owned the, the half pipe in the lot next to his house. Uh, we were skating a contest at like 14 or 15 or something we were. And um, and there were some other guys there. There was like this guy named Bruno or something from GNS and, and somebody else was there. And it was just an amateur contest. And he he's like... Enter 16 and over, dude. Enter 16 and over. And I'm like, all right, everybody's entering 16 and over. I did. And so uh, nobody else did. They all entered 13 to 15. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys are jerks, man. And uh, I won the 16 and over division. And they got like second place or something. So, so we there were, was no one over 16? No, there was a ton of people. Oh, but okay, I ended up none winning. Of your friends. Yeah, I Got ended it. up winning. None of my friends entered. And they well, they probably in. wanted you out of their competition yeah. if you won 16 and older. Still got second place. But uh, but contests started in the mid-90s. Some contests and, and a few skate parks were popping up and having contests. And we were just having fun. We were just having a wonderful time. My friends from Kalamazoo are amazing. And, and just these cool... People I were I was meeting around skateboarding. We would travel together sometimes, and we'd drive to Chicago and skate parks in Chicago. We'd get in the car and go down to Ohio and skate parks down in Ohio. But contests started, and I started winning. And then the Warp Tour '97, I think '96 was the first year, and I didn't even go. I'm like, I don't even, whatever. '97. They had the best amateur skateboard in the world contest. Skateboarder in the world contest was attached to that brand. Fans. It or, was, or the the concert or the festival it was, specifically. Yeah, it was more about skateboarding than the music when it right. first started. And so if you went to this Warp Tour, like Kalamazoo held a qualifier. If you qualified top 20, you got to skate the day of the event at high knob or at the phoenix amphitheater wherever Mm -hmm. it was at and then if you won that you got a ticket to fly to california and they took one person from each state and it it was touted best amateur skateboarder in the country or in the world or whatever and i won that in 97 in detroit and in 98 in detroit wow and so i started getting some national exposure the first year um I, I had already connected with a gentleman named Bill Danforth, who, who, if you're a skateboarder, you know who Bill Danforth is. Uh, he is one of the most legendary pro skateboarders ever to play the game. 
And I connected with him in 93, so I was skating a lot with him prior to this. And in 97, I said, Bill, will you go with me? And he's like, of course I will. And so we went out there. I was a deer in freaking headlights. I probably got dead last. I had never been on a stage quite like that. It was at... This is out in Cali, right? Yep. It was at... um, I don't even remember what they call that park. It was like the Powell Skate Park or something. And I was just blown away. I was shell-shocked. I don't even know what I placed. And then the second year, um, I'd started gaining a little more confidence, and I continued to progress. Second year, I was going out there, and I knew what I was getting into. And uh, and I placed in the top ten. What were you skating for the contests in Detroit? Was it vert? Or I was, was street. Street? Okay. I was when, when street became an obstacle con- – uh, right. when street moved into more of an obstacle course, I skated real fast. I didn't fo- – I was very consistent. And I was, I was skate everybody like at the time, I, th- I feel like everybody skated everything, at least my friends. Right. So ripping technical street guys could skate a spine and even skate some vert. Like we all skated everything. And when street contests came in, my style um, sort of translated well to that. And, and that's why I started winning. I go big and fast and I smiled all the time and had a good time. And I think that that showed. And so, um, yeah, 98 was super cool. Uh, I wasn't taking care of my body very well because I was actually qualified in second place. And uh, I wasn't eating good. And so all my muscles seized up due to lack of potassium. Mm. And it didn't matter. Like what I were you need, Just corn chips? Freaking beef jerky and <laughs> pretzels probably. But um, ramen noodles, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, You really like ramen noodles. Oh, you bring I, it up a lot. Dude, it's, it's, it's like a little piece of heaven. I'm sorry, but it is. And, um, but by the time I got home, you know, and I had acquired sponsors like prior to this, like winning the first year and getting a little bit of national recognition. Um, I'd started acquiring sponsors, you know, Vans was giving me shoes, Creature Skateboards was giving me boards. Um, who else was in the mix there? I might even been riding tracker trucks at the time because Danforth was a big tracker guy. I don't remember local shop and, uh, Metro Trend had a skate park and a shop, and and do so any of those things come with stipends or it's just free product stuff at that? As point? an amateur, yep. it was still where amateurs now get paid like almost as much as the pros. At that time, I still had to sign a thing that I never received over two hundred dollars. Oh, to enter to okay. enter an amateur contest, and um, and so things were progressing. I still had no inclination that I would ever be a pro skateboarder, even at that point. I mean, I'd draw because I'd like to draw. I'd draw what my graphics would be, you know, and stuff like that. But I still didn't think it was would ever happen. And then I came home from 98 Warp Tour, and I was riding for Globe Shoes at the time. Now I remember. I was, Globe was giving me shoes. The local rep's name was Chris Gustafson, and, uh, and he's... I got to the skate park that I always skated. We had keys to the park. All of us did. And uh, he's like, there's a guy on the phone from a company called Stink Skateboards that wants to talk to you. And I'm like, hey, what's up? And he's like, is this Gerald? And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, we're out of Grand Rapids. We, and he, you know, gave me his 30-second elevator pitch. And he's like, we want, we think you have enough recognition. We want to turn you pro. And so I called Danforth. And I'm like, dude, I don't even know if this is a basement operation. I have no freaking clue, dude. But do you want to go with me and check it out? Oh, because they signed. I thought that Danforth owned Stink. When Everybody I first, did. Right. Everybody did. 
Um, and he really ended up being the driving force behind Stink. Uh, but yeah, I gave him a call. I'm like, you want to go check this out? He's like, sure. Huh. We, he hopped in the car. We drove to Grand Rapids. They were, I think they had already asked me what I want on my pro model. And I said, Frankenstein's head and a Stanley Cup. And by the time we got out there, they already had graphics done. They, you know, obviously knew who Bill Danforth was. They had like three boards drawn for him. And he ended up being like CEO. I don't even know. I don't even know if he had a title. Right. But he ended up running that show. And so when anybody asked, I'm like, I, I rode for Danforth's company. I, I'll even yeah. say it because I he, really did. He really surprising was running the show there. So you said your first graphic was Stanley Cup and Frankenstein. Did you have two mismatched things because you thought you may not get another board and you wanted it all on one? It's That's kind a, of a weird it's combo. It's a great question, but you are exactly correct. You are exactly correct. And because of my love for hockey and um, – you know, Frankenstein, old monsters, punk rock, that sort of, and I already had a bunch of stitches and stuff. So I'm like, that fits, you know, uh, cool. And, um, but I'm, I thought, you know, this is my Stanley cup. Like I'll never get this chance again. That's why I did that. And, uh, yeah, it's a great question. Thanks. So how long were you a pro skateboarder until, uh, technically, I just I posted a, a thing on this on my social media a few weeks ago about 16 things or 12 things you didn't know about pro skateboarders. And you're technically never not a pro skateboarder <laughs> unless, like, you really, like, publicly announce I'm no longer, you know, like Cab. He's still – I mean, he still has models all right. over. You can talk to – I'll bring up a guy named Dwayne Petrie who maybe had a few models on Alien Workshop when they first started. He's still a pro skateboarder and hasn't had a model in 20 years, 25 So when years. did you stop competing then? 2007. All right. Um, from 2000 to 2007, I was super active. And I was still, you know, for a couple years there, like 99 and 2000, there was a time where we were just on tour all the time. That's when I saw you. The That's when I first saw you. But, yeah, you were, we were, you were going skating at hard a lot. Yeah, and we were, Danforth and I and the rest of the Stink crew, we were on tour all the time. I mean, we, at one point, we had a Hummer, a legit military Hummer painted with cartoon gerbil blood from uh, JoeCartoon.com. Didn't you have that weird, um, maybe it was just for the couple things that I saw, but there was a weird um, metal bowl. No, it's it the was... blue ramp that, um, that George has. George That's... at Modern has our ramp. Was there the taco ramp or was whatever? There never a bowl. Nope. Okay. Nope. But that ramp was built for our tour um, to pull with the Hummer, and we would pull in this crazy Hummer, and the ramp was hydraulic. It would fold down. We could put on a demo anywhere, and we toured with that for a while. And then, uh, I mean, I didn't. I was just the experience was incredible, you know. So uh, even the Hummer was our trade show booth. Because Stink came out with this hardline skateboards that were supposed to be tougher than everything else. So I actually, with three other guys, drove the Hummer to San Diego. It was up on sitting up on four of our boards to show how strong they were. And then nobody wanted to drive it home. They're like, Hummer's got to get home. And I'm like, I got no schedule. We'll drive it. And uh, me and this guy, Simon, just they're like, okay, here are the keys. I'm like, how come nobody wanted to drive it home? 
They all just were over it. They um, wanted to be home. They wanted to get on a plane and go back home. Got it. And Simon and I are like, let's do it. So we made a we made a freaking road trip out of it. Went to Vegas, and are you pulling the ramp? At the no, same? Okay. that was just when it was the trade show booth. Right. But a funny story there is because I at the time I was reading a ton about aliens and conspiracy theories and different things. We did go through Area Fifty One <laughs> in the Hummer, like on the edges of it. And on the, we had to look like UFO hunters because on the top was the um, framework for our booth. Mm-hmm. So it totally looked like UFO hummers. And I saw the dudes like up on the hill with their M16s or whatever, signs that said, if you cross here, great bodily harm could happen. <laughs> and I'm like, let's just keep going. <laughs> um, but no, it was an amazing experience. And, and that happened for a few years. And then I really didn't make a ton of money. As, as a other than your order. board, did you have your name on other product? And if so, what was your favorite thing other than the, the board? Um, I did have a pro bearing, okay. uh, a couple different versions of it with ninja bearings, uh, a clothing company out of New York called Underground Clothing. I had some signature um, apparel with them. Did you design? I, yeah, those, like I drew, cool. I did the so artwork like that. and all the stuff. That yeah. was super cool. Um, but I think the board meant the most to me. Sure. You know? That's why I said anything but the board. Yeah. Um, the bearings are super cool because I ended up becoming good friends with the gentleman who ran the company. And when he found out that I could I could draw, I ended up doing some other people's graphics for him. I did Ricky, oh. Ricky Iola. I did one for Sheckler, uh, Ryan Sheckler. Um, I did some sketches for Christian Hosoy, but I don't think it came to fruition. I did Danforth's favorite bearing label for him. Um, maybe a few more, but it was mm. just a cool relationship. So I love that relationship with Mike Sorge and Ninja Bearing. So I'd say that, Ninja. So I'd imagine once contests stopped for you in 2007, that sponsorship or freebies and all that stuff sort of started dwindling. So... What was your transition from pro skateboarder to what would come next? Um, another great question, because even though I wasn't competing, um, I was still very active, very active. Like drawing I for was, Ninja. And I was skating all okay. the time. I just wasn't competing. So my sponsors, I didn't have any contracts for paychecks, but they still hooked me up with gear to keep going. Was it still a time where if you weren't doing contests, that if you still got your picture in a magazine, that still that lasted for a couple years. A couple years, I still had editorial kind of agreements with different people that you know, if it was a half page this much, full page this much. But I really, um, and I don't know, I I don't know what the transition, like what prompted the transition. Like I was always super cool with everybody, and I would give all my old boards away. I'd give old shoes away. Uh, and, and was always pumping people up and there was sort of this natural progression towards like just doing some positive motivational kind of stuff. And in 2000, I think it was 2006, 2007, um, jackass was super popular, right? That was the big thing. And everybody thought all skateboarders were jackasses. And I came up with this harebrained idea. I'm going to make a TV show. And it's going to be a positive TV show that anybody from 6 to 60 to 80 can watch. And I actually was called... Was it be based around skateboarding or... Yes. Okay. The first idea 
was that I would go into a town, tell the story historically of that town, talk about um, if they have celebrities from that town, we talk about that, and then we would um, bring in donations or, or bring some money to revamp their skate park if they had one, and if they didn't, we'd build them one. That was the first idea, and I called George from Modern. I'm like, dude, I want to make a TV show. Do you know anybody who can help me? And he said, well, this guy, I know, Kurt, he might be able to. So I meet uh, Kurt Lettermoser, and when he got out of the car, I'm like, oh, my word. Like, he had flip-flops on, and, like, I'm like, this is a quarterback. You know, he had a visor on. But he came from a college, a, a very heavily sports background. Well, we meet. I end up going down to um, the Team Sports Entertainment and Media in Columbus, Ohio. I meet with an awesome human named Dave Winham. And within a year, we made a one-hour pilot uh, called Underground Valley. And it was me. It wasn't quite my initial vision, mm -hmm. but it turned out to be similar to my podcast where mm -hmm. I would go into a town and there would be a celebrity or somebody there that I could tell this positive background story of their life. And I had Buster Douglas on the show, which he, if you don't know, Mike Tyson at his top of his game went to China for a tune-up fight, and Mike and uh, Buster Douglas knocked him out. And that was sort of like the beginning of the demise of Mike Tyson. Well, Buster came on. We told some great stories about him. Danforth was on the show. So what city did you do? We were in Columbus, okay. New Orleans, Chattanooga. Oh, so, okay. We that went was around all in the country. one episode? One, one pilot? episode. Okay. Each little segment was about, I think, 10 minutes long. Mm -hmm. um, we did a segment about my grandpa, who's my idol, which is awesome. And it was right when I was getting his name tattooed on my wrist, and I just talked about how wonderful of a human he is. And I'm like, if I get one shot at this, I want to I put as much as I can in. Like you're bored. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, TV networks didn't want anything to do with it because I wasn't sleeping with 14 women or like pulling hijinks. It was right, too asshole. Especially if they had stuff like jackass. And I would imagine at that time, I don't know my reality TV history very well, but yeah, I think that's when they just wanted a bunch of drama and stuff like that. And I, nothing positive. I mean, it was a rad experience, never got picked up, but that was sort of the springboard for things I was going to do in the future. Yeah. Um, because when I met Kurt, we started working on an amateur contest series called the Adrenaline Games Alliance so that um, – because, you know, I, I sort of glossed over. When I turned pro, uh, my sponsor gave me 40 boards, said sell them for what you can, and you have to go to California. So I went out to California knowing nobody mm -hmm. and tried to make it work. Um, and so we started the AGA to possibly create an amateur – contest series in the midwest where if somebody wanted to pursue a, a career in extreme sports they wouldn't have to like mortgage the farm like i right. did and, and so and many others go out to the only place where right. people skated right you know. so yeah with the aga um we did some community outreach i started speaking on stages like we'd go in we'd, we did a contest in like racine wisconsin and or even down into tennessee and I would, the week before the contest, I would visit a few middle schools and high schools, talk about living passionately, living with drive, chasing oh, so your dreams. So is that what started your speaking? Yes. And that was? Yes. Wow. Yep. And um, and then it was ultimately to drive people to come to our event on mm -hmm. Saturday. And I really love being on stage. I love, like, hanging out with the kids after, um, talking with them. 
Uh, so that really got me like excited about inspiring others, especially the youth, to let them know that they can. Um, in one story in particular, I was speaking in a town called Soddy Daisy, Tennessee, and it's just like this mountain town. Mm -hmm. And I gave a speech there, and about three weeks after I got home, um, I got a letter from the principal. And there was a kid there that his parents were in prison, and he was being raised by his grandma, and he would never come to school. He had no drive. He was failing, and he happened to see me speak. And he said, I want to be like Gerald Daly. And he never missed another day of school. And he was showing up every day. And I had donated a board. I would donate a board to any school. And I would say, you know, don't make it by grades. Please, you know, just anybody who shows up for a month straight doesn't miss a day. Let their name go into a hat. And he ended up winning the board or they gave it to him. And, like, one of the teachers bought him some vans. And, like, it really turned his life around. And that made a huge impact on me. And and um, and that's, you know, why I still do it, to inspire, like, one person. I only – just one person. And um, and so, yeah, that's what really got the ball moving for the motivational stuff. And then it was – So that's probably pre-podcast. So when podcasts started popping up everywhere, well, the pod it seems like it would be a natural transition from having to go to all these different places to give your message to – having people come to you and everybody being able to listen to it. Well, what was interesting about when I started the podcast, cause I started the podcast in 2010 and about that time I was having a ton of trouble with my hips. And that was like October, 2010. Like I, I was having trouble walking more from my goaltending career than my mm -hmm. skateboard career. And, um, and I think a doctor told me, like, my hips were shot. I needed new hips at, at that time. Would that be from the squatting or the side-to-side -side motion, yeah, okay. down and up, all that stuff? Yeah. And uh, That's common for goalies? Yeah. Wow. Uh, hips and knees. And, um, and so that happened October 2010, and I thought my skateboard career was done. And so I'm like, I, I know I love adrenaline. What can I do? What can I do? I need adrenaline. And so I decided to start a podcast. I looked on the internet, found a free service that I could do it with called uh, blogtalkradio.com. And I could call in on my phone. The guests could call in on their phone and we could do a show. And so, and I took it very seriously. Like I, I called the show Underground Valley uh, because of the TV mm -hmm. show. I made my own logo with a little mic on it and stuff. And I'm like, I have like some of the coolest friends. I'm just going to interview my friends. That'd be cool. And, uh, and that's what I did. Nothing and was filmed at this time. Just all a straight audio. up podcast. Yep. You can still find them out there. You can still find those shows out there. But I had everybody on the show. Like, I mean, I had uh, musicians, financial gurus, uh, just, and some, most were my friends. And I'm like, they're so interesting. Come on the show. And I did it more for the adrenaline rush. And I knew that I had to start laying the groundwork for when I couldn't jump around like a circus monkey. Mm -hmm. And, and still had that same feeling. And so that's when I started the podcast. But that's also when I ran into um, paying attention to my diet, meditation, yoga. And um, my hips almost immediately cleared up. And I didn't have any problems till the last couple of years. Again. What was the biggest change in your diet that you think helped? I started looking up things that were anti-inflammatory okay. foods. And, and what is that? And eliminate acid like celery, cucumbers, um, surprisingly like lemons, okay. uh, things you wouldn't think of. 
uh, lemon and what's water. What's bad? Everything. <laughs> Everything. I mean, like, like I love uh, ramen noodles. Ramen noodles are wonderful. They're not bad. They are not bad. Um, but they probably technically are. Um, There's no sodium. Like, we can talk about that for hours because my doctor told me, you need more sodium. Your blood pressure is low. And I'm like, I love ramen noodles and pretzels. What do you want me to do? Like lick a salt lick? But uh, uh, no, just, um, you know, eliminating fast food, eliminating, yeah. you know, things of that nature, just trying to be a little more conscientious of what I'm putting in my body. And, um, and meditation was huge. I started trying to teach myself how to meditate and then going on YouTube and finding what would work to, I take orders pretty well, and so I finally found, like, a meditation thing, like guided meditation, where they would tell me I have to relax, and I listened. And so, um, and surprisingly, like, from 2006 to, that would be right before that. Like, we were going hard, like, Mm -hmm. even after my competitive career. We were still skating pretty hard. Um, But, uh, yeah, 2010, I changed a lot of things, started the podcast. Uh, I do believe that uh, getting into meditation and yoga uh, is the reason I can still ride my skateboard today. If I wouldn't have done that, uh, I don't think I think my body would eventually just given out. But um, yeah, the podcast started because I knew I needed adrenaline. I was I knew uh, being a goaltender, skateboarder, right. action junkie, and if I couldn't be mobile, I needed adrenaline. So I started the podcast, and then uh, it was doing pretty well, and people were listening. And I, I wasn't getting on stage as much anymore because the AGA sort of morphed into um, a little bit of a different thing than what our original vision was. So I wasn't traveling speaking, but I still loved inspiring people. So we were doing it through Underground Valley. And then 2012, I'm like, shit, I got to write a book now and figure out how to write my first book. Yeah, it's good how this is all flowing into each other because I did not know, yeah. you know the, the timeline of things. Because you'll you'll pass little nuggets here and there, but I don't know where they where they drop in your timeline. So, what made you decide to write a book? Is it just a natural progression from what you were doing on the podcast? Sort of, yeah. sort of. Um, and what's your first book called? Voluntary Self Achievement. Okay. And I've I've always really been a, a personal accountability guy, and uh, and that you know you make your own bed, and I even back in 2012 I felt like we were losing that that everybody was blaming everybody else, that there's always an excuse. It's not my fault. And so uh, technically I didn't write my first book, and I'll tell you the secret. Um, I had a ghostwriter. Oh, you did tell me that. Yes, I did. And um, I ended up going online, finding this rad, rad couple out of Southern California, punk rock dude, Stan and Jenny. Uh, Stan Mueller was like, yep, that's what we're doing. We're starting a ghostwriting thing. I'm like, sweet, you want to do this? And he's like, yes. So does he interview you yep. a lot? His, his um, Jenny was a, a teacher. And so on Sundays, Stan would call and interview me for like four or five hours, maybe three hours. And he'd take that interview and Jen would write a chapter. Hmm. Wow. And, um, and then we did that for the whole book, really. Uh, and also I wanted worksheets for kids. So that they, it could be interactive. So she helped me put together the little worksheets at the end of each chapter. And then the book, which you can find on Amazon right now, um, the book came also with a workbook so that you didn't have to write in the book. And it was mm-hmm. bigger with all the worksheets. And so um, 
I I was I had started speaking around that time a little more to the middle schools and high schools again, like some just an ebb and a flow. And now it's really just motivational speaking and, yes. and not tied to right. a project. Right. Right. And so I, I had these and I didn't even want to sell. Like I, I didn't have a goal of being a New York Times bestseller. I wanted something to give to the kids and donate to libraries that could make a difference. And uh, that's what we did. And I was super stoked on it. And I really just put it up on Amazon in the last year. Like uh, after the physical copies were done, it, there wasn't an ebook out there. It was it was for the kids to take home and start to learn. And that was 2012 when we did that. And around that time is about the time I decided vodka was a good idea. And that was 2013. And I... So did do you feel like that came about how you had mentioned that you were worried about losing that um, motivation or adrenaline from skating. Did alcohol play a part to replace some of that or possibly the world, my world I felt like was um, collapsing, Hmm. you know, Um, my relationships weren't very good at that time. Um, I felt like my pro career was done and I really had a mindset as my drinking progressed that I've done everything I was going to do with this world. There's nothing else I have left to give. So timeline-wise, this is after you made the decision to eat healthy. Yeah. I already knew meditation. I knew the right things. I knew I could get through it. Just to add vodka to the mix? And I was pretty much straight edge for my whole life. I mean, I drank a couple years in my 20s, and I really never, whole hockey career, I didn't drink a beer until I was like 25 or something like that. I, I I don't even know how it came about, really. I just, you know, started drinking, and it started actually with rum because I thought I was a pirate. And um, <laughs> and then somebody's like, drink vodka because it doesn't smell as bad. So then I switched to vodka, and it just progressively got worse over about a, I don't know, five, six-year period. And... Um, and it was just, it was brutal. Like, cause I, again, I, I'll mention it again. I'm all in. If I like something, most of my life was for positive things. When it came to vodka, I was all in. Did you still skate during this period or did it become less and less? Yeah, less and less. I tried, I tried to continue skating, but eventually alcohol took everything. And were you speaking? No, okay. no, Gone. like that. Every nothing else mattered except to try to drink myself to death there for a little while. So, what were you doing to get drinking money? Um, I had some money in the bank, yeah. and uh, I money still that you saved from all your hard work. Yeah, and I still worked uh, for a couple of those years. Eventually, I drank myself out of a wonderful job. Um, I was playing drums. I'm a drummer. I was playing drums in a band that was doing pretty well, and I drank myself out of a rad punk rock party and band i drank myself out of a partying band yes i did that it's pretty bad when you're the the partier that gets kicked out of the party band i was just completely unreliable you know anytime we had practice i don't feel good today and they knew they knew what was going on and um and so yeah there was a, a that patch where nothing mattered like and i was trying to destroy everything including myself and then just february 2nd 2017 after multiple rehabs um hospital visits, uh, I made a decision that I would never drink again on February 2nd, 2017, and um, and I don't know what clicked. I People ask me all the time. They're like, what was it? Like, what what was that, that epiphany? 
I don't know. I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, we can die now and let's get it over with or we can get out of this. And uh, I was going to say, you are you are not somebody who wears your sobriety on your sleeve. And I know that you have helped multiple people. Was there anybody there to help you or it was just all this decision to I'm doing it? Um, and it just, and you just did it. Well, I had already been to a couple, we have a wonderful, uh, recovery facility in the state of Michigan, uh, Brighton center for recovery is like top five in the country. Like that's where Eminem went. That's where Aretha Franklin, oh. not Aretha Franklin, Anita Baker. I don't know. Right. But anyway, that's where the celebrities go. And that's where I went. Uh, so I started, uh, getting to know some other sober people or people in recovery and, after that day and um, after February 2nd, I made it a point. But I had already been to meetings, a bunch of meetings. I knew the big book. I knew this. I knew that. And um, it just, I, I I don't know. Like, again, I, I, I had sober people around me, people I could call at any point in time, and I just didn't make those phone calls. Mm -hmm. And then after after that day, um, February 2nd, ironically, it's Groundhog's Day and I got tired of living that same life over and over again. Yeah. And, um, and the analogy I, I'll tell people is I, I got to a point where if somebody told me I had to crawl on glass to Antarctica to stay sober, I would get on my knees and crawl on glass to Antarctica and I would do whatever I had to do. And I did. And I, you know, I, uh, I waited two years. I, I stayed sober for two years, and this is continuous sobriety from any alcoholic beverages. Um, and then I did my first interview to talk about it publicly because I wouldn't talk about it mm -hmm. at all. And then at two years, I did an interview with my buddy Higgy. And, yeah, I, I quietly, you know, friends like you and other people around the community, they know that um, – I'm pretty solid in my recovery, and I'll help anybody. And so sometimes they'll say, you know, I have a buddy who's having a hard time. Can he give you a call? And I'll, I'll give him my card and say, yeah, he can call me anytime. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there's a great crew from Ohio that come up here that are all in recovery. Um, and more and more we're seeing that sobriety is like the new punk rock. How did you hook up with the Ohio crew? Because those dudes are rad. Social media. All right. Jeff Schill and I, he saw some of my posts. Because I don't really put it out there, but if you read into my post, sometimes right, you that's can what I'm saying. You don't wear it on your sleeve. And uh, and he private messaged me, and uh, started a conversation. We ended up meeting up at Riverside Skate Park one Sunday morning at 10 a.m. And he's like, "I'm Jeff Shell," and I'm like, "Cool, dude." And we've been friends ever since. Those guys, you know, he does a lot with Lighthouse Recovery yep. down there. Um, his whole crew is in recovery when he comes up here. He's just a phenomenal human being and I'm honored to call him a friend. Amazing skate crew. Too. Oh, dude, they're so cool. Stellar. So cool. But, um, sobriety was one of the one most wonderful things that ever happened to me. Uh, I don't, I don't suggest it for anybody, um, to have to go through that kind of hell, but coming out the other side, one thing I was missing in those first, you know, four decades of my life is a solid, um, feeling of self-worth and self-love. And that came with getting sober and because I did it for me. I didn't do it for anybody else. Um, I had already lost everything. I mean, I had repo men trying to tow my car. Uh, 
I, I almost lost everything. I mean, zero bank account, horrible credit score. Like, I seriously, nothing. Uh, February 1st of 2017, nothing. And um, and it, it just having that feeling of self-worth has been just amazing these last five and a half years. So I'd imagine that clarity and self-worth that you're talking about led to you deciding to write a second book. Yes. Um, uh, it's the second book people have asked for years because the first one was geared towards teens and young adults. It's not officially out yet, right? Not, not yeah. till September, All right. but, uh, people had asked me, you know, some, some older, I say older, older than teens folks had read the book and they're like, I got a lot out of this. It'd be rad for you to draw, write the adult version of this book. And I knew I wanted to do it. And this year I did it. And it's not the same book, but similar. The, the, my new book is called DIFY, Do It For Yourself, A Simple Guide to Living the Life You Deserve. And it's, you know, nine chapters of things that I have learned and that I've used to overcome some of the hurdles in my life. And it's uh, so far about 15 people have read it. And I have gotten great reviews. Well, I'm one of Yeah, I liked it. And I'm, I'm curious... If you had to pick like one technique from your book, what is your favorite practice or technique? Gratitude. Yep. Gratitude is the most important thing in life. I mean, I could say the morning ritual because your morning's going to set off the rest of your day. Um, I think every chapter in there is pretty important. You know, there's some things in there about building self self esteem and self love and and about personal accountability. But I really think gratitude um, is the most important thing every day, you know, spending a few minutes in the morning and in the evening being thankful for what you have and the opportunities you've been given. I think that's the most important. Well, with that, I'd like to say that I'm thankful that I now have this Gerald Valley timeline <laughs> from birth until now. I hope you I hope everybody watching enjoyed it. I know I did. Cool. You know, just as a friend. But even before that, as a fan, uh, as appreciating you as a skater. Well, and that I, obviously back then I didn't know anything about you. Well, I, I thank you for, for being my friend and, and, and coming on the show in the past and coming and doing this because, uh, you know, you can find little nuggets of this story around if you search. You can find interviews here and there. But um, I'm like, cool, let's do this. I don't think we can fit you know, everything I want to talk about, like we didn't even talk about Purple Heart. We didn't talk about a lot of stuff that's in there, but I think uh, you did a great You'll just job. have to have me back. Well, you did a great <laughs> job with this one. So yeah, we might have to do it again. I didn't again. pick up my paper once. I know. And it worked out like seamlessly. You're a natural. When are we doing the Rob Paul show? I don't know. We can't call it the <laughs> Rob Paul show. That would shut me down. I do have, I have a game. Do we have time for a oh. quick game? Oh, we have all the time in the all world, right. man. Well, I stole it from uh, Billy Eichner. I'm excited Billy about on this. the street. You mentioned the game, but I have no I and honestly, he mentioned the game, but I really don't know what the game is. All right. Well, it's as simple as this. You just have to tell me. I'm going to list 10 things and you have to tell me whether it's a skate trick or a hardcore punk band. Oh. You ready? Maybe. Body jar. Oh, that's a skate trick. Jackson Greg has the best ones. Ask Jack. That is a great band, 
and it's uh, Hank three. Yep. Sack tap. That's a skate trick. That's a skate trick. You're doing good. Dark Casper. That's a skate trick. Ice pick. That is a hardcore band, but it's also a BMX trick. All right. I have bands, so so I'm five correct. for five. Drop dead. Gotta be a band. It is. Sad plant. Jeff Grasso, Lance <laughs> Mountain, uh, uh the best sad plant skateboard trick. Slapshot. Slapshot, Boston, I think. Hardcore, goalie mask for their logo. Um, and I've never heard one song by them, but I know they're a hardcore band. Nosebone. Nosebone skate trick. Last one, Stalefish. Oh, that's a great rock and roll band <laughs> of skate punks. It's both. It's both. So there that, was, <laughs> that was good. And I want to, uh, what was the second to last? Uh, Nosebone. Nosebone. My favorite Nosebone, uh, in a Nosebone, you do a trick, point your front foot. John Cardiel has the best. And yesterday, I saw footage of John Cardiel. And you know the John Cardiel story. In 2003, I think, he was in Australia, ran. And Cardiel is one of my favorite pro skateboarders ever to play the game. Um, he was in Australia, I think Australia. And he got out of a van, and he ran to get some wheels or something, and they didn't see him, ran him over with trailer. He was did not know that. He was paralyzed. And he spent some time in Australia, came back, and they they gave him, you know, you're never walking again. Well, he he did. It's John Cardiel, dude. And um, one of the most gnarly skateboarders ever. But um, I started walking again. He could ride a fixed gear bike. And uh, and this was, I, I'm pretty sure it was 03. I may be wrong on the year. But um, I saw a video of him yesterday getting pulled by a bike pedal bike around the corner and he's freaking all John Cardiel and I might get choked up because he he like pushes the bike away and he front side slides the curb and I saw that oh I my just word that. it was I I like tagged a few people in was it was he pulled I, for speed because or he has he trouble can't push I just assumed they were just pulling him to get him up to I that. don't think he can actually push yeah. wow and uh and it made my day I'm like oh my word Cardiel man I don't even collect skateboards I mean I have my own boards in my basement but I'm not a board collector I have a John Cardiel board in my basement because that's how important that guy is to skateboarding and to see that if, if you have any inklings of you can't do it John Cardiel <laughs> that's all hey all hail Cardiel John Cardiel you can do whatever you want dude was paralyzed in Australia and he's riding bikes, frontside sliding curves. And that's your overall message. Amazing. Is, is you can do it. You can do anything. Anything you want in life. And it's never a lack of resources. It's more often a lack of resourcefulness. And I believe that with anything. Well, I always feel a little bit more positive when I'm with you. Cool. When I talk to you. So, again, I know I thanked you. And then I went into my game. But I'm going to thank you again. Well. Thank you for letting me be the one to interview. That was a treat. Yeah. No, I had a great time. And, uh, you know, we're going to do more stuff together. I know that. But thanks for taking the time to. I'm going to write a sitcom for us. Ooh. Like a buddy sitcom. <laughs> Maybe we're cowboys. I don't know. I haven't really put it together yet. <laughs> we'll figure it out because I have this ongoing cartoon movie in my head. 
and I'll comment about it sometimes. Like, in my cartoon movie, this is what would happen. I'll never make the cartoon movie, but that's what goes on in my brain. But, um, no, it's been great. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Uh, you got to know a little bit more about me without having to search too far this for mic it. Out of my face. Yeah. And, um, and Rob, thank you. Um, but, uh, you know, if you don't know who this guy is, make sure to go back and check out the show. I, I, I spent an hour with him talking about his life, and it was, it was awesome. It was, it was super insightful. And hopefully you, you learned a little bit about me today, you know, a little glimpse into uh, what made the machine. Um, I just put a video up on YouTube about the Frankenstein monster, and it's been on almost every board other than two. There's only been two of my signature boards that didn't have a Frankenstein head on it. And um, I started thinking about it a little more, and I'm like, you know, Frankenstein monster was made uh, animated by parts from all these different people, and, and Dr. Frankenstein put it together and made this animated figure. And we're not that much different. The people around us are the people that – you know, we, we take a little bit from this person, a little bit from this person. We're giving it away as well, but we, we, we see the things we like. We see, wow, Rob has those cool Jeff Grasso shoes. I wouldn't mind a pair of those shoes, you know, or whatever it is. Usually it's it's their mannerisms, their habits, their different things like that. And so we're really built out of different people. And that's why I'm very fortunate to have friends like you in my life because you bring a whole different set, uh, a different outlook on things, a different mindset. And I love that. I love that. And so we're really all sort of like the Frankenstein monster, so to say. And so that image has, has actually um, encompassed even more than just the scars and the, and the battle wounds and those kinds of things. So hopefully you guys got something out of this show. Um, I know I did. I, I, I enjoy telling the stories because we all tell, t love talking about the tough times we've been through and how we overcame them. And some of that, my stories about overcoming some of those tough times, making those tough decisions, even life-changing decisions. And so when you got to make the tough decisions, you know, follow your gut. Go with your heart. And I, I promise you, you will not be wrong. But with that, we're going to close out this episode of The Drop-In. Um, this is Rob Paul, the amazing Rob Paul. I am Gerald Valley, and this is The Drop-In. <laughs>